Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. Hey, what up? I'm Alex, CEO and founder of Marspace. And this episode, we'll be talking to Anna Thidre, senior developer, advocate, engineer at AuthZero, which is an American company providing authentication services and products. And we'll be talking to her about the roles of developer advocates, what kind of people they are, what are their functions in the company, whether introverts or extroverts or both can perform these kind of tasks in the companies, what skills are needed, what are the daily tasks? Because there are roles that do you know, technical blog posts, customer support, they work on community, they conduct webinars, they give talks at conferences, they do a lot of stuff. And, and, and it's a role that traditionally hasn't existed uh, in a lot of companies, right? It's mostly for extremely technical companies who need to sell also to engineers to sort of penetrate their companies in a B2C2B model of selling, which is also not selling because they are advocating, they are not preaching, they are not doing evangelism, they're not doing outreach sales. They're very, very focused on community and filling the shoes of the other developers who might in turn start using their products and services, right? We will talk about this, we'll talk about context switching, we'll talk about the future of conferences, we'll talk about a lot of things and this episode, right? So I uh, hope you will enjoy it as much as I have enjoyed recording it. And here's our episode with Anna Thidre. There you go. Hello, Anna. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. Welcome to Live on Mars. Hi. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here today. Anna Thidre, your senior developer advocate engineer, longest uh, title ever at Zero, an American company, if not mistaken. Uh, we're going to be talking to you about what's the role of a developer advocate? What kind of people can do this job? What are the skills needed? How is your day distributed? Or how do you distribute your weeks, uh, your role at conferences, being public um, face of the company you work for, and many other topics. Are you ready for this? I'm totally ready for this. Give us a little bit of your background, if you want. Let's start a little bit of your background, because this is a role that, I don't know, many, many years ago, let's say, 10 to 15 years ago, maybe it didn't exist, or it did exist, but in other words. I remember technology evangelist, but that sounds like really boomer. And we're not talking about the same thing here. So let's talk about your background. How did you come up to be like this uh, developer advocate role? Okay, well, funnily enough, I actually studied art. So I come from an art background and I then went into web design because, well, art, design, I really enjoyed it. And then I was at the time I was working for a very small startup and they needed someone to help them with the code. There was like five of us on the team. So in that sort of team, you kind of have to learn how to do a bit of everything, right? So they're like, hey, would you be interested in helping us code here? I was like, sure, why not? Little did I know how complex it was, but (laughs) I started and I absolutely loved it. So that's where I started to learn how to code and eventually I grew and became a freelancer and I started building web applications. Um, I was trying to find ways because at that time I had a daughter, my first daughter, and I was just trying to find ways to kind of work from home. So I thought freelancing was the best way to go forward. 
And I did that for a few years. And then I also started giving talks because I found a very welcoming community, which was the Angular community. And um, at that, that time, sorry? What year was that? Just oh, now you're putting my memory to the test. <laughs> so I think I started giving talks about three years ago now. Okay. I'm not sure if it's three or four years ago. My memory is awful. But it was around that time. And um, the first talk I ever gave was was with a very good friend of mine, Sherry List. We decided to pair up and give a talk because people were encouraging us to give talks. And we decided, like, hey, we're going to do this. Let's do it together and tackle it together. And that that whole year, we basically gave talks together and we started growing. And she now works at Microsoft and I now work at OCRL. And yeah, so I really enjoyed giving talks and I enjoyed working a lot with the community. And that's how I ended up becoming a a developer advocate that I am today. (laughs) I wanted to, because you passed this very briefly, but what was the thing that interested you in code coming from an arts perspective, right? Um, Because that... I think that in order to understand code, you need to have the brain shaped in a, in a, in a different way, or at least not to understand it, but to enjoy it, right? And you seem to enjoy it from the get-go. What was it in the code that you said, man, I, I like this. I Not only I understand it, but I want to work on this. What was it? Yeah, so it's funny because people say that they're very, very different art and coding, but I don't see it so different because when you paint, you have a white canvas, right? And when you start building a web application, you also kind of have a white canvas that you have to paint, but with code. And that's what I really enjoy just seeing like my ideas come onto screen and like being able to design them and create them how I wanted and to make them work how I wanted. I found that so rewarding and that's, I guess, what made me really fall in love with coding, just being able to see an end result, but also being able to manipulate it how I want to do. Let's talk about the definition of the role, right? A developer advocate. What is, in your words, a developer advocate? How would you describe it? Well, there are many types of developer advocates. Like if you look at just my team where we're six people, we all do very different things. Um, But at the end of the day, what we all do that's the same is we serve developers. So we go out there and speak about all different technologies. Sometimes it's related to the product or the service at the company we're working at, but sometimes it's not. And what we want to achieve is to be able to get developers to tell us how we can make their lives easier. So, for example, with Auth0, we are always looking for feedback so that we can make it a better product. And we then take that information and we give it to our engineering teams and we share it across the company to see how we can make Auth0 maybe a better place or a better product or whatever. Because I think that one of the interesting parts of this, and, and that was going to be my next question, is that there are several different kinds of developer advocate, right? Um, I assume that it's also related to the kind of person you are. If you're more introvert, maybe you're more like working on the, I don't know, maybe social media kind of things or just giving or writing blog posts or working on the product. Whereas if you're more extrovert, you might be the one talking at conferences. Is it that related or 
how do you say it? Like, what, what's, the, what's the distribution like in your company, at least? What kind of different developer advocates you've got? Well, in our company, we actually have a content team and a developer advocacy team. The content mm -hmm. team is the one that takes care of all of our blog posts and, well, everything written, basically, which mm -hmm. I personally really appreciate because I'm not a big writer myself. So <laughs> <laughs> But definitely on our team, we're mainly speakers. But because of the pandemic, we've also seen how we go to different, like, sectors right like we have James on our team who is the YouTube specialist he's like good at everything YouTube Tyler he's just amazing at just pulling events together um, pulling up code and just making things happen quickly mm -hmm. and Ben is um, he keeps talking at events he's also come up with like some challenges that we can do online um, my European colleague Sam Bellen because there's two Sams on the team He is the one that takes care of all of our open source. Like, I don't know how he does it, but he managed to take care of all of our open source. Me, I've, I reached out more to the community. So I, I built this initiative called Avocado Labs. And that's where I reach out to the community and create a self-welcoming space for everyone to come and join if they want to. So how do you, how would you say, how would you describe developer advocates? Can an introvert, like a pure introvert, can he or she be one of them or not really? You need to be a mix of introvert and extrovert or? Definitely. I think um, we did this test in my team and basically all of us are introverts. So oh, wow. <laughs> you just have to like get past this barrier of speaking in public. And once you pass that barrier, then you You're fine. Like, yeah, we're all introverts. Well, also because this part, one of the great things about community in the deaf side of things is that the community is very welcoming, right? So even if there's a lot of encouraging for new people to, to first of all, break this, this confidence barrier or maybe just try to bring other different kinds of people that are not used to giving talks. So, hey, let's be part of the community. You need to do it. Like, it's going to be great for you. So that's one of the, the great things that your role does. And I think that we're very thankful for that. Also, another thing that I admire developer advocates is because you managed to reinvent marketing in, in some way. Let me, let me rephrase that. So traditionally tech companies would be selling through um, sales representatives, right? And if, but if you're selling your company, for instance, extremely technical, Azure, right? If you are selling to other developers who in the end are your target customers, we as developers, we don't like sales. We don't like marketing. We don't like peaches. We don't like, you know, guys in a tie and just like trying to evangelize or preach about their technology, which is like very, you know, defensive against this, right? But in this role of advocacy, uh, what you were precisely mentioning is that I think that you have sort of reinvented the kind of marketing that's more revolving around uh, community about, hey, I'm, I'm, filling your shoes. I know your pains. I've been through this before. Let's sit here. Let's try the technology. I'm going to share this webinar with you. I don't know. It's a whole different kind of selling. Uh, what's your impression of this? So how do you think you're also selling without selling to other companies or to your target users? So yeah, this is a very good point because we as developers, we do not like sales. That is totally true. Not at all. And Obviously, developer advocacy is trying to share their product, but we never have goals that we have to sell. Like That's not our goal. Our goal is... You don't have KPIs. No, okay. not in that sense. 
And um, we do have goals, but there are other ones like developer reach, for example. Mm. And um, actually, I think developer advocacy is one of the hardest things to track. Like, <laughs> what's what our impact? Kind of like branding in a way, right? It's like how do you yeah. measure? Yeah, okay, yeah. Let's talk about the, the goals later. But like, let's yeah. let's concentrate on the selling selling without selling part now. Selling without selling. So we want to generate trust within the community. And we can only do that by being authentic. And to be authentic, you need to be a developer. You can't go to a developer conference and be like, oh, Sarah is amazing. And then not be able to show them how it works or what to do or answer their problems or questions. It's just not going to work. You'll come off as a salesperson. So you have to be a developer definitely to be in this role. Unless um, you're doing some sort some other role we do have a program manager on our team for example but she's not outward facing and so when we come to sorry I keep sidetracking but when we come to selling um authenticity helping solve problems um being there for the developer are our main focuses so we just want to make it as easy for you as possible and we also want to be well people you can trust so if you come to us with a problem we're not going to just like turn our backs on you or say i don't know this isn't a problem we're going to sit down and help you so that's kind of our way of selling it's indirect and it's authentic yeah it's more like you know um, the impression i get from you know uh following you or or other other people like the, the guys well people doing at uh, this very same role at, at slack type form um Sangrid, actually, the original developer advocate I met at Sangrid in 2013, I think it was, Nick. Uh, I remember that it was the first time I saw a developer on stage that he could actually speak in a very, you know, a very, how would you say it, a very expansive manner, right? He was uh, he was outgoing, he was like a loud mouth, he was like, you know, just like swearing all the time, very being very happy, just owning the room. I was like, I'm not used to these kind of talks. And he he was answering very funnily and with puns all the time, all the questions. And I was like, wow, that sounds really nice. And that's my first impression I got of a developer advocate, right? And then from, from there on, I met more people. But I, I thought that it was kind of like a brilliant way of having somebody speaking both sides of the language, right? The technical side and the business side, because uh, that's one of the main skills that sort of, you're sort of like a pre-sales person um, being put on on stage, right? And to me, that's precisely one of the magics of the of the developer advocate. How do you balance this, your language between being too technical and being too sales is too human, right? How do you how do you mix this two? Well, as we don't have to sell, then what we do is we focus on the technical part. So we mm. just share with the world our technicalities we don't really go out there and be like obviously we show how to use Orsera. we have videos on our youtube channel how you can implement Orsera with xyz technology because that's what developers need they need to see how to integrate our service into an application they're actually building so that's what we're going to give them we're also going to give them content content that may not even be Orsera related and that's just purely to help the community but also so that when they find this information that they need, they're going to remember us and they're going to think one day when they need to use authentication, they're going to think of us. So it's never really 
selling. It's more, hey, we're here if you need us. And when you want to use authentication, maybe you can think of us. So in a, in a way, it seems to be like a, a developer advocate is doing, I mean, you need a lot of skills because you need to write, you need to speak publicly, you have to conduct webinars, you think to be technically proficient and understand the code and be able to code yourself. You're in a way doing customer support as well. You're working on product. And if it was not enough, we're also working on community, right? So let's let's break this down a little bit. What skills do you think are needed for this role? Because um, maybe not all of them are needed, the ones I mentioned, but like, what are the minimum essential skills? I would say technical skills, um, speaking skills, but that's also something you can learn. Um, okay. You can get better at speaking. You can get training. Um, we have had training within our team. Um, writing skills is also something you can learn. And like I said, in our team specifically, we're not a bunch of writers because we have the content team. So it depends on the company. And it depends on the role. And you have to be also good at spreadsheets and Google Docs. <laughs> How come? Which is something I did not expect. <laughs> How come? I didn't expect it either. So what are you doing on, on spreadsheets? What aren't I doing on spreadsheets? <laughs> All right. Is it, is it somehow related to no code or something? Or it's just like purely you need to manage your data and you've got your dashboard and... Yeah, we have to manage data. We have our ambassadors that we take care of too. They have mm -hmm. to be shown somewhere. Um, and whenever you create a new project or idea, you have to document it. So that's why I say Google Docs. This is <clears> the <throat> part of management, right? Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, I, no, that's very interesting. And one of the things I learned about recently is that um, you know some of these companies, because usually developer advocates are in very technical comp companies, that they have a strong presence in the community because they need to be integrated here and there. I mean, they, they might have their sales team, like in the case of Typeform or Slack, right? But they also, they're also selling to developers because developers are developing the, you know, the plugins, the integrations, they might do little side projects, open source, whatnot. And they're also growing their customer base, right? In a very indirect way. And one of the funny things is like a lot of them or if not all of them are getting into no code now. Right, because it seems to be all the all the buzz right now. I don't know if it that really affects O zero, but uh, but I I don't know if that's something that you have to learn recently. And what's your opinion about no code? We are getting into extensibility, which is actually no code. So um, <clears throat> we're currently our team currently isn't touching that topic too much at the moment, but we do have. Um, zero actions which is based on low code but you can also code them if you want to so it's kind of whatever you want okay. let's circle back because I, I forgot to ask something what was the distribution of your task like every day or week how do you distribute among this many areas of being a developer advocate well it's it's very challenging so you, I, I personally have a lot of different things that I'm working on right now. And um, I was just in quarantine for two weeks because of my son had a case in his class. So I've been trying to manage work, but obviously it's, my workload has become increased. So I've now got a productivity planner and hmm. I can like, <laughs> yeah, I need to kind of find ways to organize, organize myself because I'm working on, I'm going to talk about me. I'm working on Avocado Labs, which is this yep. mission I told you about. 
but I also um, have to create videos for conferences, create talks for conferences, um, sponsorships. I'm onboarding some also ambassadors at the moment, and I have. I'm going to be helping with the new um, Devra newsletter that we launched a few months ago. And yeah, so every day I need to, what I do on Mondays is I sit down and I look at what I need to do for the week. And I try to organize myself as good as possible. So today, before coming onto this podcast, I was creating a talk for an event that we're hosting in Spain in a few weeks. I'm not going to give any more information because I don't want to spoil anything. But um, that's going to happen. So I was creating a talk and now I have a podcast. Later on, I'm going to be working on creating a video for a sponsorship. And then I'm going to be having some meetings because we also have meetings. <laughs> but that's just Monday. Uh, do you have like themed days or are all days like the same and you don't separate by, you know, by concerns? Let's say Monday is more like uh, whatever content and Tuesday is sales or um, you know, video or Wednesdays just talks, you don't just read your agenda like no, that? No, I just look at, well, I look at the big picture. So what's going on in February and then I divide it into weeks and what needs to be done. And no day is the same for me. So it never gets boring. I never have like, what we do have is on Fridays, we're not allowed to have meetings, which I really, really love because those are the days Great. that I'm super productive. And <laughs> I try to dedicate those days to coding because that way I don't get interrupted. And like doing demos and stuff. Um, and yeah, but how about context switching? Because it appears to me that maybe the, the ultimate mind killer here would be context switching if you're doing too many things. And they are they are related somehow, but they require very different mindsets, right? It's not the same editing video as coding and then talking to people or hosting an online event, right? So how do you go about the, the context switching? Because for me, that's one of the worst parts about my job. I love it, actually, because um, I love to have a challenge and I also don't like to get bored. And I think in developer advocacy, you can never get bored because there's so many different things that are happening. Um, before the pandemic, it was a bit more simple because we would go to conferences, talk, prepare the talks, take care of ambassadors and stuff. But it wasn't all this video editing, creating videos, online events and so forth. So... I personally enjoy the content switching because I like to do different things and I might create a to-do list for the day, but then if there's something that I really don't want to do, then I might switch it for the next day and do something else that's completely different. So you've got very, very different things, but what are the things that you dread the most? Don't worry, your bosses will not be listening to this. <laughs> um, there's always something you don't like. Doing of course and I think my weakness is reporting I All do right. it but I do not enjoy it who does yeah <laughs> what's your most favorite part of of your job like one single thing I guess this is more general but connecting with the community and just having these conversations like what we're doing now I also enjoy kind of community related <laughs> that's related to my next question is going to be i think a very difficult question because i think i can relate to you in this pain of not knowing what the effects of a certain action will be until maybe years in the future right you host an event today 
but you cannot measure the effect of the event. I mean, you can have how many participants were there, but you don't even know where they're working, what their side projects are, whether they liked it or not, things like that. You're creating a blog post, you're sending out a video, you're sending a sponsorship, uh, whatever, but you don't really see the effects of this. And it's very frustrating. And sometimes they never come back. Sometimes they come back like six years later. I mean, this is something that happens to me every day because because we don't have, as a pure inbound company at Marspace, we don't have to sell, right? What we do is also, we're very oriented to the community. So in a sense, I'm also being an advocate for my team. But um, now sometimes I'm getting project requests from companies I talked to six years ago or five years ago or seven because I helped them in something. And they're like, oh, you know, I remember this guy. He helped me in something. I'm going to reach out for this project, right? So uh, at the very... You know, when you do this action, maybe you're speaking the podcast like, oh, I'm not getting out anything out of this podcast. And I know you don't think like that because you're community oriented, right? But some maybe more data oriented marketers or salesy people would be like, what's the ROI of going into this podcast? But maybe you will get people to listen to this podcast over the years and then they will, I don't know, apply for a job at the, the company, right? How do you deal? This is a very long question. That was a big context just to say, how do you deal with the frustration of not knowing when they're returns on this investment will come to you? Well, luckily, I have some amazing managers who take care of all of that for me. So I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> the ones no, you're reporting totally to, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's totally true. Um, we have had this question, but we're very lucky because All Zero was built by developers. Like the, co the CEO and the co-founder are built by developers. So they're very developer-focused and they understand the importance of developer marketing, which is basically what my team's called. And um, yeah, we don't have to worry too much, but we do have good managers who have our backs and say like, look, the importance of this team and what they're doing is this, we need to be part of the community and so forth. So it's not something that I personally worry about too much. Um, I totally believe that the more people that know and hear about us will love us just as much as I love it. So <laughs> I, yeah. Now, the reason I was asking this is because sometimes, you know, we have to do or sign partnerships, right? And on paper, all partnerships are good. But then, you know, year one passes and you got no results from the partnership, year two, no results. And maybe your, you know, your, your bosses or something like there, mm, this partnership is not working. And then on year three starts working, right? So this is a very frustrating thing that I don't know how to manage. I don't know if my partners in the company, they know how to manage. I don't know if you know how to manage, but looks like your, your bosses are taking care of, yeah. of it. So good for them. What are the roles? So the goals and KPIs you're working on, if you got any, like how did they measure your work? You said they don't, but I think there might be some indicators, right? Some you know, they, they can test whether some things are working or not because you need to take decisions at the end of the day. Yeah, of course. So um, it depends on the initiative. So right. we have a YouTube initiative where we're trying to gain more viewings, more subscribers, more likes, the obvious ones. Um, yeah. In Avocado Labs, we're also tracking views and whatnot. And that's mainly our focus right now because we're all online. We're also um, tracking our ambassadors, how many people apply to the program, what content they're delivering and that kind of stuff. But these are just, I think they're pretty normal goals. Um, there isn't anything out of the ordinary and yeah. 
Before going into Avocado Labs, because it's something that's really interesting, you you brought it up a couple of times already. I wanted to get your opinion on this. I don't know if you've, I think you've had also a similar experience with uh, European companies. Um, What would be the difference you perceive between uh, DevRel in in Europe and in the US or in European companies versus American companies, if you spotted any, besides salary, most likely? Um. Yes, yeah, salary is uh, it was it was a bit of a difference, but um, I don't believe it's so much European and American. I think it really depends on the company's culture in general. All right. So I can only speak very well on Forcero because I feel like it's my second home. We have some company values, um, which I can totally and always relate to. We have three company values. One of them is we give a shit. Another Great. one is one team, one score. And the third one is M plus one is greater than one. So I can, those are very much put into our day to day. And I see it all the time, especially like one team, one score. You reach out to other teams and everyone's always willing to help you. And we give a shit. Yes, Authora does give a shit. We're like helping um, other communities too, underrepresented communities. We have um, lots of initiatives going on on how to like, we have volunteering programs, but we also can donate money and Osira will give like so much in addition to what we donate and so forth. And we also can work on things we are passionate about. Like I'm passionate about the community, so I can develop more on that. And M plus one is greater than one. Just means that you have to be a tiny bit better every day on whatever you're doing and you'll be much better in the long run. I can tell the company gives a shit because you're one of the very few people I've seen with senior in front of developer advocate. Usually developer advocate roles for what I understand what I've talked to other dev routes uh, around the world. It's much more like, I wouldn't call it an entry position, but like usually there's no not much seniority there, right? And I don't know if that's related to the fact that the the companies don't haven't had this role for a long time, or maybe it's not as consolidated as other roles within companies. I don't know what's your opinion on this. I think to become a de- developer advocate, you have to have a good developer base, right? Um, it doesn't That's have to be point. like 10 years or anything like that. Um, but you do have to know how to code. Right. So when it comes to developer advocate, not only do you know how to know how to code, but you have to have given like a few talks and have some years of ex- maybe at least one year of experience in that field too. So I'm not sure if it's an entry-level job. Maybe the speaking part is an entry-level job, but mm-hmm. otherwise um, I think you need to have experience. And I, w- I would say that most developer advocates are senior, actually. So, <laughs> so are, and are their salaries as well comp- compensated and correlated to their seniority as well? So. I can only speak for myself. It's not something that most people like to discuss. <laughs> um, but comfortable question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, for me, it has made, like I said, it has been a small change for me. Yeah. But um, I think the biggest change was that I went from part time to full time. So I think that's where it really struck me. Okay. 
it would seem that, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. And when, you know, when, when there's developers who just switch to other things and they're like, oh yeah, maybe, you know, uh, you're working on product and then you're like, ah, it's always boring to work on the same product. You go to an agency, it's like, oh, too many projects, you know? So it's always like the grass is always greener on the other side. But I've never talked to any developer advocate who wants to go back into coding full-time. <laughs> is that your case as well? Or how do you yeah, think I about do, that? I, I don't want to go back into coding full-time. <laughs> Talking to APIs is more boring than to talking to real people, right? Yeah, it. I really enjoy my job. I love speaking to people. I love connecting with people. And I can't be in front of a screen like 24-7 anymore. That's just <laughs> not for me. <laughs> let's talk about Avocado Labs. Let's get, let's get back into, uh, into it. And um, you can share with the audience what it, what it is, because I think it's a very great initiative. It's very correlated to the times we're living right now. Yeah, so Avocado Labs is an initiative I started last year. I think when we checked, it was April, even though the process has started before, but there are always processes. So Avocado Labs is an initiative that I initially started because I wanted to get content around the world to everybody, like from the comfort of their homes, because it's not always easy to go to conferences and meetups, whether that be due to... uh, um, The pandemic now. (laughs) the pandemic or let's not go into the pandemic uh it could just be because you have a family and you don't feel like traveling to a conference or it could be economic reasons or it could be anything right sometimes you just can't go so we wanted to create this um so that you could watch it from your own home and then the pandemic hit so that was quite convenient but then i realized when the pandemic hit um when you're a developer advocate, you know a lot of other speakers, right? You know, from other conferences, you know speakers. And I knew a lot of my friends had fresh talks straight out of the oven and they couldn't deliver them because all of these conferences were being canceled because of the pandemic. And I was like, hey, well, I'm building this thing. Would you like to like speak on it? And they were all like, yeah, let's do this. And then it started growing and people were really interested. And we've got a lot of good vibes and what I've noticed is actually the talk format like giving a slideshow presentation on a place like Avocado Lab isn't working as well as for example a panel discussion or like what you and me are doing talking about topics that are more interesting and well not more interesting but people are you're not selling it really well (laughs) yeah I'm not But people are kind of bored of just sitting in front of a screen. They want human contact. They want interactivity. I want it. So I totally understand that. And that's why I think this one-sided present sorry. This one-sided presentation might not work as well right now because we're missing that human contact. So you notice there's been a drop in visits and this kind of sort of, I don't know, workshops or or tutorials content? Yes, more um, if it's workshop, people will come because it's something they can join in. Well, there's on. interactivity, right? Yeah. yeah. But when it's something like just giving a talk, they have to be, I don't know, I don't go to any online conferences right now. I personally don't do Me it either. because I'm just like burnt out from being online the whole time. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think my neighbors are 
having <laughs> worked in their house today. I don't know if you can hear it. Okay, but, now I can hear it. Yeah. So last oh. week we had to to postpone this <laughs> this recording because it was my neighbors. You know, perks. Uh, not perks. Um, sorry, difficulties of working from home. As you get that. I'm no, it's all right. Um, it's not very that, sorry. that loud over here. No worries. No. Um, no, and the thing I wanted to say is like it seems like the the sort of content you're posting in Avocado Hubs it could be perceived as a sort of a asynchronous conference, right? In which you can, you just go onto the website and you you browse for whatever you're interested in, click in, consume the content, right? But I agree. If you're spending the whole day at home in front of the computer, the last thing you want to do is to watch another talk that is not interactive, right? The main appeal of things like you know Zoom events or online conferences might be that you get the chance to speak to the speaker or there's a networking part. However diluted is that compared to the real thing, which is, I don't know when it's coming back and we're going to be talking about that, but um, at least there's some sort of interactivity. And if you're working in community, that's really important, right? So um, my next question is, when do you think we're going to go back to that? And when do you think like real life events are coming back? So I personally don't think we're going to be able to do any live events until the end of the year. Hmm. And at the end of the year, I think it will only be on a national basis. So I think we'll be able to go to local meetups. And also we have to give conference organizers time to actually organize the conferences. And they're not going to start doing so until we've actually reached that point. Um, so I don't think international travel is going to start again until the beginning of next year. I hope I'm totally wrong because oh, I, hope <laughs> I really want to try. <laughs> That's hurt me. <laughs> I hope I'm being very pessimistic right now, but the way things are going, I think beginning of next year, we can start thinking about conferences. Because up until the pandemic, how many conferences would you speak in, in a year? So, Sorry, can you say that again? How many conferences would you speak in, in a year uh, before the pandemic? Um, I was doing about one or two a month, so 12. To and they were international as well? Yeah, so... I am DevRel in EMEA, so yeah. that's where I'm meant to like focus on, mainly Europe. EMEA, for those of you who don't know, is um, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Mm -hmm. um, I would occasionally go to a conference in the US or something like that, but yeah, it mainly be... It because the, the part of the events is really, I mean, it hurts me a lot because we organize also a conference at Star, uh, sorry, at the Mars Space. We organize Startup Brain Tech every year in Barcelona. We had to postpone it last year and until this year, and we've canceled it because you're right. It's not like you can organize one event or a conference from in just one week. It takes months. Like at least for us, it takes six months before the conference. We need to have at least 80% of the speakers and the sponsors line up. Otherwise, the, the conference doesn't happen, right? Because it's a conference of a whole day. We've got 20, 25 speakers. One day and a half, actually. This year, we were planning to do two days. And, you know, um, it's a lot of budgets, a lot of, you know, travel and the venue and the providers and everything. So it's not like, oh, yeah, in June, we'll be all vaccinated. Let's have a conference in July. No, that's never going to happen. Also, no. what might happen and I don't know your opinion on this, and I want to hear your opinion also from the sponsoring side, right? Is that I think companies will not be very eager to sponsor conferences or at least to take very big commitments just in case 
something else happens, right? What do you think, like from the sponsoring side now, let's say, because, um, you know, I'm I'm getting this feeling from our current sponsors and we were working with AWS, we're working for, uh, for a couple of, of companies here in Barcelona, also technical companies. And they're like, yeah, but let's make the contract shorter this time, right? Maybe they don't want to commit that much just because there's a lot of uncertainty going on. What do you think that will happen in this regard? It's hard to say. So what we are doing right now is only sponsoring online events and we also follow up on the regulations in the countries. So if you do plan to host an in-person event, we will reach out to our legal team to make sure that that is actually legal. Yeah. <laughs> and then on the other hand, I think as long as you have a good cancellation policy in place, um, companies will sponsor That's one thing we ask about too. That if you're going to host, if you're planning on hosting an in-person event by the end of the year, what's the cancellation policy in case this doesn't happen? Yeah, because I mean that's something that perhaps you didn't have to have before the pandemic, or you never know um, until it happens for the first time. Then it gets really painful. Uh, just completely unrelated, but one friend of mine just learned the hard way that the, he needed a clause in his investments of what happens if the founder dies. You know, he never thought we would need this until the founder of one of his invested com portfolio companies died. I was like, ah, now I think I need it in every contract, right? Sounds very dark, but I don't know. It's it's kind of like you never think it's going to happen, and then it happens, right? Yeah. In a sense, are you getting like what are the uh, results of online events? Because you said that you don't enjoy them that much, and I, I think we're on the same page here. At the same time, your company is sponsoring online events because maybe there's got a mark, you know, there, there's a marketing budget that you need to spend and you need to continue investing in community. Maybe that is the only way right now, right? What what are your thoughts on, on this and what are you what are the returns you seeing? So I was at a sponsor booth for 48 hours. Um, obviously not 48 hours straight, it was two days with sleeps. <laughs> yeah. But that was, off, was just... offline or online. Online, 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 sponsor booth, a virtual sponsor booth. Oh, wow. and it was the most horrible experience ever because we literally had like four people on two days. Yeah, and I was just sitting around on a Zoom call trying to get work done, but you can't really get work done because you're worried that someone might pop in. You can't really concentrate, and I don't think that conferences should require that. I think they should allow sponsors to decide when they can be available during the time, maybe during the breaks, during a lunch break, something like that. But two days on a virtual booth makes zero sense. We do sponsor events, but we're focusing on diversity sponsorships because we want to give people from underrepresented groups an opportunity to attend these online events because some of them aren't free still because they use platforms like Gather.Town or Mebo or I don't know what other platforms are other hundreds now but yeah we want to we do it more to give people an opportunity to actually go than the return we're probably getting from it because we're not getting a lot of return from online event events I think that's in my opinion as well. That's why we stop sponsorships in, in StartBrain, which is an event that we host every month besides the, the conference, just because, so like, you know, we look forward to getting back to normality, 
but I don't think online events really deserve your attention or we're going to be able to give you back the returns that you expected, right? So I think it was honest at the same time. You know, I think people, one of the reasons I, I realized why online sponsorships, they don't work is that when people go to an online event, they're usually, you know, they they join like two, three minutes after just because they're until the very last minute, they're answering emails at work and they just want to, they will only pay attention to you. They will switch to your tab when you have already started. So if you got an initial introduction, if you got like sponsor speaking, if you got this and that, like, you know, more like institutional talks or whatever, it's like, I don't want that shit. Just let me know when this real thing starts, right? And as soon as it, when it gets uninteresting or there's a pause for sponsors or whatever, they just context switch to something else, right? And I think that's why maybe the sponsorships need to be rethought in online events. They need to be consumed asynchronously, maybe, than um, forced into the audience. I don't know. Yeah. Um, sorry, you wanted to say something about that. Yeah, so one thing that is also missing on like an online sponsor booth, the thing about booths and in-person events is that people would go there they'd get a t-shirt they'd get something or they'd have to walk by the booth mm -hmm. and that's why they'll stop they'll stop to talk to you but online why would they come to your booth <laughs> unless they have questions about the product <laughs> unless there is i saw i saw there's a product it's kind of like an ultima online or kind of like a second life for events in which you participate as an attendee of the conference but you have to walk through the venue Right, as if it were a, it's a, it's a map of the venue. Like you, you get a, like a I think it's a two dimensional uh, view of the venue, and you need to walk around. And maybe there there might be some sort of serendipity there, which I think is the part that's missing from offline events. Which, speaking of that, uh, serendipity, you know it because you're a speaker in many conferences and you organize events. So how? How do we solve this? Because that's the missing part in online events. There's no serendipity. And you might know as well as I do that whenever you go to a conference, not so much about the talk, which is also really important, but it's about the the networking part, the just walking around in the audience uh, in between talks, just mingling with people, the surrounding events. If you go to Web Summit, it's not about Web Summit. It's about all the surrounding parties and pride events and, and all of that. So how do we solve this serendipity thing in online? Are you missing it? Because the best I, business happens backstage and the best friendships do. Yeah, I know. And it's just, I haven't found a solution. <laughs> and if anyone does have a solution, I'd love to hear it because it's one thing I personally miss a lot. That's what I miss most about the conferences is, is I love giving a talk on stage, but I love meeting people more. I love saying, hey, well, we go grab a lunch together or will we go grab beer together or I don't know something and just getting to meet new people make, making new connections or connecting with old connections like like I said you get to know the other speakers when you go yeah. traveling so much and now what we've been trying to do and uh, what we did for a sponsorship at one event was a happy hour which worked quite nicely. But the only reason that worked quite nicely was because a lot of the speakers came on and those speakers were people I knew personally. So we were like, okay, let's make this fun. We know each other. And then some attendees came too, which was nice. And they all saw how crazy we were, like playing a guitar or singing. We did a bit of karaoke there. And It was not only drinking online. You were not only encouraging online drinking. 
No, 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 not at all. Anyone, you could bring whatever drink you wanted here. We do not <laughs> discriminate anybody. We're, we try to be inclusive. So, so, so you, you, you think you like karaoke and get your flag on an online event with the speakers. That's, that's very crazy. That's, that's fantastic, yeah. actually. Do you have any recording in that? Is that, is that publicly available? Was, that, was no, there something no. really funny in there or...? There was, I have a few photos. There was um, two people who played a ukulele too. And nice. then what we did was because the good thing about online events is that people are from all different countries. Yeah. And we would say a word in a language we knew and the other people had to guess what it meant. That's and nice. that was really fun because a few people said potato in their own language. And then, so every time someone would say something, we're like, potato, potato. <laughs> and it was just, it was just like in time. Europe, everybody's just like, it's the same word pretty much everywhere, except for Germany. But like, uh, I think that if you go farther East or, you know, um, no, that's, I, I, I never thought about that. But before wrapping this up, I wanted to, to see from the perspective of events organizer, because you're also involved You're the founder of Galstech. You're also involved in Rails Girls Galicia, if I remember correctly. You might be involved in other initiatives that can remember them all. But like from the events uh, organizer perspective, right? Um, what is the thing about community that you have learned that you have then imported into Zero or your developer advocate role? So um, one thing I work on a lot is to try to be more diverse and inclusive. And that's something, um, that's why Galstack began. So um, Galstack began because I would go to events here in Galicia and I'd literally be the only woman in a room full of 80 people. And I thought to myself, I cannot be the only software engineer female in Galicia. So that's why I started it. And the group, grew we're now 100 which is really impressive nice and i try to emphasize this a lot in also like when we create an event we cannot just have male speakers we cannot just have white speakers we have to have diverse people so that people feel welcome and they want to come we also have to support them more so that's why we sponsor um We also always sponsor diversity sponsorships now just to help these people feel more comfortable, feel more welcome, have those opportunities because like we can't grow if we're not diverse, just not going to work. Um, yeah, well, yeah. What would let you to take the first step? Because obviously I think this is kind of like a vicious circle, right? If you don't have role models, you might not take the first step because you think you might be the only one. But luckily for Galicia, for instance, you were not you were not thinking like that. You just said like, you know, fuck it. I'm going to be the first one and I'm going to be organizing uh, Gal's Tech and I'm going to be organizing this event so that other people, uh, they have visibility of these 100 people. They have visibility that they are not alone, right? What sort of like click in your brain activated or triggered you to take this first step? Because it's not easy. I don't think it's easy for everybody. Well, I was already at that time organizing GDG Beagle. Mm -hmm. So I already had experience from that. But and that's when I saw that women weren't just showing up. Not so even developer like, groups, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, I have to do something about it. And I don't know. I just kind of said to myself, like, this can't be. Like, it's such an amazing community and such an amazing world. Like, there's so many opportunities. 
So I really don't know what triggered it. I guess the fact that that event really annoyed me because we got so many signups. We got like 80 people signing up and I was the only woman there. I mean, sometimes it just takes to have like a really bad experience somewhere and to identify the pain points of your previous company. Perhaps when you create your new venture, it's focused solely on solving that, right? And it seems that you saw this pain point, you wanted to solve this problematic, and that's why your uh, your events have been successful and why you're being successful at what you do at O Zero. Before we wrap this up, last question. Everybody gets a signature question of life on Mars, which is we're trying to make, to democratize fuck-ups, right? Especially tech fuck-ups. So what's the most expensive tech fuck-ups uh, have you ever done? That's a very it needs good to question. be yours, by the way, because everybody says like, oh yeah, a, a friend did that. It's like, no, no, it needs to be yours. <laughs> To be you can mine. quantify it, that's better. Um, I guess it was when I was a freelancer and I was working on a project. I don't, I wouldn't be able to pinpoint one because the first years were very, very tough. <laughs> there were a lot of fuck ups. <laughs> um, I mean, we've had people just wiping out the entire database in production of like millions and millions of records and things like that. So it's not like, and there was another one that had a fuck up of, I think, 50 million, right? Uh, quantified in euro. So no pressure. <laughs> I don't think it's been that big of a fuck up because I first, yeah. When I first started out, there were more smaller clients. And then when I got to bigger clients, I wasn't just like, I never had like sole control over one thing. It was always like lots of processes in place. All right. But there was no like big fuck up that you say in this transition from working for smaller clients in which maybe, you know, taking risks was better and more controlled than with bigger clients where your reputation was at risk, right? Or something like that or? Yeah. Definitely. Any new technology like, you use Zucon and you didn't really know how to manage it properly or? When I first started, definitely. And I just did the things I did. <laughs> when, like I was, I went straight from JavaScript. Like it, I was learning the basics of JavaScript. I went straight into Angular, which for those of you who know, Angular is a very, very steep curve. And yep. I made so many mistakes. I made like things show up that shouldn't show up, buttons that were pressed doing things they shouldn't be doing. And yeah, but I wouldn't be able to pinpoint one. There were so many embarrassing moments. <laughs> <laughs> that's I why tried to here. delete that time, you know? <laughs> you shouldn't, because that's, that's how we learn. We learn by practice. We learn through uh, oh. mistakes. So that, that's why we bring up this question. It's like everybody fucked up and we've talked to... Um, mm -hmm. uh, famous CTOs, even they're like, oh yeah, that one time we said a ser the server's on fire. I was like, what do you mean on fire? Like metaphorically, like, oh no, no, literally we burned the servers down just by sheer accident. Like, what <laughs> the actual fuck? So sometimes, you know, uh, the, the higher you go, the bigger fuck ups you, yeah, you make. Anyways, and one last minute before we wrap this up, it's for you. Let our audience know what you're up to, what is up to or Avocado Labs uh, up to, what can we expect from you in the next months and how can we help you? So um, Avocado Labs is going to be getting a rebrand. I'm not going to give any more spoilers, but I really encourage you to go and follow us because we are going to be doing some amazing stuff on there and it's going to be paced at your own time. That's all I'm going to say. Um, 
yeah, follow me, follow us on Avocado Labs, the DevRel team's behind it. We're a bunch of fun people there and reach out to me if you want to on Twitter too. I'm always available. All right. Thank you very much, Anna. Thank you for having me. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now, how can we help you?